This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. Despite all the advances in medical science, not every disease has a cure. Facing a terminal illness, some patients say that they wish to die at a time and in a manner of their own choosing. That's a wish that triggers an agonizing personal and legal debate, as Rita Braver will explain in our Sunday Morning cover story. Brain cancer patient Brittany Menard drew national attention when she moved to Oregon, where she could legally end her life. But that's not allowed in New York, where Eve Elliott's husband was in agony with ALS, an incurable disease. Did he say, I need you to help me figure out some way that I can end it? Yes, he did. Ahead on Sunday morning, a dying wish and a heated national debate. From there, it's on to some literary undercover work, specifically an investigation into what's actually between the covers of some ordinary-looking books. Lee Cowan is on the case. There have been countless exhibits of antique books over the years, but this collection doesn't involve bound pages or even printed text. Oh, wow. My collection is only limited by my pocketbook. I would be much crazier than you're seeing here in this exhibition if I had a, if I had a few more bucks. <laughs> Spell book? The book collector who doesn't really collect books at all. Ahead on Sunday morning. When the call goes out for the envelope please of the Oscars, one nominee will be extra attentive. She's been waiting for this moment for a good long time. This morning, Tracy Smith will have her story. years after she steamed up the halls of Ridgemont High, Jennifer Jason Lee is up for her very first Academy Award. Do you allow yourself to think about what Oscar night will be like? I didn't even allow myself to think about like what this interview would be like. 
<laughs> the colorful past and spectacular present of Jennifer Jason Lee ahead this Sunday morning. Monkey business is what Seth Doan has found at a popular tourist spot in Japan. It's hard to take a bad picture when the subject is monkeys bathing in a hot spring. I'm kind of jealous, I think, more than anything. <laughs> it's the year of the monkey on the lunar calendar, and these guys have got it made. They are pretty cute, the snow monkeys of Japan, later on Sunday morning. Hannah Warner looks back on the life of author Harper Lee. Ben Tracy has questions for comic actor B.J. Novak of television's The Office. Former CIA director Michael Hayden surveys the front lines of the fight against terrorism with David Martin. And Connor Knighton is on the trail again, this time in the tunnels at Kentucky's Mammoth Cave National Park. Ahead, don't judge these books by their covers. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. What if a patient's dying wish is to die on his or her own terms? That's a passionately debated topic within families and within state legislatures, and not even the terminally ill are in agreement. Our cover story is reported now by Rita Braver. This is the forward operating base, which means you're in the middle of the city. Camp Falcon. That's, that's me. you? Yeah, I was the executive officer of the company. And you were a lieutenant? I was a lieutenant. As a U.S. Marine, J.J. Hansen survived combat in Iraq. But after he got home, his life was suddenly in peril. We were having a lunch meeting, and all of a sudden I started getting this intense feeling. And my hands started to shake, and started to sweat, and I said, guys, there's something wrong with me, you need to call 911. I got the phone call from the EMT telling me that he had had a seizure, and it was nothing but a feeling of shock. My perfectly healthy husband was in the hospital. After an MRI, the news got worse. Kristen Hansen's 33-year-old husband was diagnosed with brain cancer. I had a uh, prognosis, likely four months to live, in the best case scenario, I could possibly make it a year. Hansen underwent surgery and chemotherapy. He struggled through nine more seizures while losing his ability to talk and walk. I'm thinking, what, what do I do here? Do I continue to fight? Do I give up? Is life worth living? Is it worth going on and, and, and feeling this pain? Cut the slices out? Yeah, that should work. J.J. Hansen found himself in the midst of the same daunting struggle as Brittany Menard, who also suffered from brain cancer. I refuse to subject myself and my family to purposeless, prolonged pain and suffering at the hands of an incurable disease. Menard made national news in 2014 when she moved to Oregon so she could legally receive a prescription for a lethal combination of pills. She vowed to end her life on her own terms, and over the weekend, she did, taking lethal drugs prescribed by a doctor. Her story inspired a change in her home state. California recently became the fifth state to legalize aid in dying. The law will take effect later this year. A Gallup poll last May shows nearly seven in 10 Americans support it. It almost feels like there was kind of a dam that has broken, and suddenly everybody is talking about this. It's not toxic. It's not taboo anymore. Barbara Coombs Lee heads up an advocacy group called Compassion and Choices. She co-wrote the first in the nation Oregon law passed in 1994. It enables terminally ill, mentally competent people to ask a doctor for life-ending drugs. It's the individual who initiates a request, who undertakes a number of steps in order to gain eligibility. And then the last safeguard, a very important one, is that person has to administer the medication themselves. Our life together, but no such law exists in New York State where the Hansons live. He loved birds. He was like insanely in love with birds, which meant he did not like squirrels. But and where Eve Elliott shared a home with Jim Del Grosso, 
her husband of more than two decades. He was my true, true love, and I fell intensely in love with him, immediately. But in 2012, her true love, a professional painter, was diagnosed with ALS, known as Lou Gehrig's disease. It's incurable. He quickly lost the use of his hands and then control of his entire body. To see him not be able to hold a paintbrush or a spoon, his life had actually left him, is what happened. His life left. He was in his body, but his life was gone. And to see him be a prisoner of his body was unbelievably and indescribably painful, awful. To end his suffering, Del Grosso made an excruciating decision. We had talked about it for hours and hours and hours. We had talked about it for hours, trying to find a way to help him get out of this prison. With no other legal option in New York State, Del Grosso stopped eating and drinking. He died days later from dehydration. He was in this terrible prison, and it was his own body. I want people to hear this. If you have not had this kind of experience or been very close to someone who's had this experience, you really can't know. You just can't know. Comfort at the end of life shouldn't be an accident of your geography. Um, everyone should be able to feel comfortable at the end of life. To make that possible, Barbara Coombs-Lee says her team now has set its sights on New York as the next battlefront. What's your game plan in New York State? To take people who have firm beliefs and turn them into activists. Eve Elliott's already on board, but there are still many opponents, including folks you might not expect. If this is legalized in New York State, you're going to see immediately the negative outcomes. Yes, after he briefly contemplated ending his own life, J.J. Hansen is still fighting. Almost two years after his diagnosis, he's finished his chemo and he heads the Patients' Rights Action Fund against aid in dying. Why do you feel that you can make this decision for not just yourself but for other people? If you have a full legalization across the United States, People like me will start to look at assisted suicide as their only alternative. And I was told twice by doctors, your time is done. They told me basically that I was dead. Where does your hope go? What is your agreement to, to move forward? The American Medical Association is on Hansen's side. Its code of medical ethics reads, allowing physicians to participate in assisted suicide would cause more harm than good. Hansen also fears economic injustice. If you're looking at someone who's very poor and this is the only alternative they have because their insurance company will not fund their chemotherapy, well, now it starts to become a problem. But Coombs-Lee says it's just the opposite. The injustice right now is that there is a huge underground practice of aid and dying. Doctors write prescriptions with winks and nods, but the people who can avail themselves of that are people of wealth, people of stature, people who play golf with their doctor. In Oregon, she says, one big sign that legalized assisted dying works is the fact that a third of those who get lethal prescriptions in a given year never end up using them. Do you think that just knowing that your husband would have had the option to get a prescription would have eased the anxiety for you? Oh my God, I would have been so grateful because he would have felt so validated, so understood, so actually taken care of, so heard. He would have felt heard. Are you Superman? Yeah. yeah. Hey, I'm flying. Flying. I'm flying. But the Hansons are focusing not on what might have been, but on what could be. The reason that we felt we needed to speak up and share our story is because we've seen that you can beat the odds. And we're afraid for all those people who will hear that, hear that dire prognosis, and just accept it. Coming up, an alarming development. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. February 21st, 1858. 158 years ago today. The day Edwin Holmes of Boston installed the very first electric burglar alarm. Holmes had bought the patent the year before from inventor Augustus Pope, who had never done anything with it. Not so Edwin Holmes. He went into business, first in Boston and then New York, thought to be a more crime-ridden city. Holmes' ads stressed security and peace of mind. On the technical side, he pioneered the use of telephone lines to connect home and business alarms to ever-alert central offices. Holmes even set up his own uniformed security service. Security alarms of all sorts have become ubiquitous since the days of Edwin Holmes. Nobody will get hurt. And they earned a place in our popular culture. Ringing alarms punctuated the film Bonnie and Clyde, which starred Ward Beatty and Faye Dunaway as notorious Depression-era bank robbers. Just marking my place. While in the film How to Steal a Million, Peter O'Toole and Audrey Hepburn used a boomerang to trigger a high-tech art museum alarm, tricking the exasperated guards into turning it off. Simply put, security alarms have sure come a long way since this early model. They are now a $22 billion business in this country, employing more than 171,000 people. Talk about not judging a book by its cover. Take a look at this. With Lee Cowan now, we go undercover. If you're a lover of books, there's no place quite like the hushed hallways of New York's Grolier Club. It's America's oldest and largest society for the exceptionally well-read. In this case, we have religion, commemoration, photography, and travel souvenirs. But its latest exhibit is a page-turner of a decidedly different sort. My hope was to knock everybody's socks off. I wanted to, like, amaze and inspire. Mindel Dubansky has spent the better part of 30 years rummaging through pawn shops and eBay and garage sales, all to find books that aren't filled with paper and ink. Instead, they're filled with surprises. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That is great. From leaping wooden snakes to something a little more adult. Book flasks were very popular during Prohibition, the hidden ones. She even has a few books once owned by magicians. That one is the Holy Bible hot book. So that when they're telling a story, they're doing their spiel, and then they open it and flames throw out of the top. And somebody, this is a hot book gone wrong. I mean, you can kind of see it. It's like... <laughs> this is all your collection? This is part of my collection. Yeah, I have about probably maybe 600 or so. It's nuts. I know. <laughs> it's crazy. In fact, she has so many of these books that look like books but really aren't, she invented a name for them. Blooks. It's an affectionate term that I have for them, and it just stuck. So Blook is just a contraction of... Book look. This case has food and candy, grooming and fashion, household appliances. Her exhibit is the first of its kind, and it's drawing crowds of book enthusiasts, anxious to see her collected curiosities, often bound with nothing more than imagination. And it is a sewing box. Really? Yes. Take the 1960s Secret Sam camera book from Topper Toys. It included a periscope, a 16-exposure camera, and the ability to shoot rubber bullets. As a longtime preservation librarian at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Mindy began to think that books that looked like books should have a place in history, too. So at its very core, this is a celebration of the book as a thing. It's a book love show. For me personally, it's gratitude. Gratitude for? For books. I love them. (laughs) They've changed my life. What else can you, this little simple thing, it's sitting on the shelf, you pick it up, you start reading, the next thing you know, your entire life has been transformed and you're another person. Her favorite fake books are the ones that do something or become something, like this one. Oh, wow. The oldest item in her collection. It's a portable altar, a Catholic altar. It could have been a hidden altar in a place where it was um, safe to be a Catholic. 
There's also a book alarm clock from the 1970s. Then there's this Crosley book radio from the 1950s. And then there's the book with eyes called The Informer. So what does this do? It's a motion detector, a security alarm for your house. <laughs> Some are clearly novelty items, and those are Mindy's favorites. This whole case is exploding books. <laughs> yes, she said exploding. Brought to us by the same company that brought us the whoopee cushion. They went off with a bang to the unsuspecting reader. Or if they were really unlucky, some got an electric shock. You scare the hell out of one of your friends, basically, and it's hysterical. <laughs> there are funny titles and funny authors, like this one, written by the illustrious Dostoevsky. They were called punchline books, and they all opened to reveal some pretty good one-liners. And what's this one? How to save your hair? How to save your hair. So how to save your hair is how a plastic bag. How to save your hair. We absolutely guarantee if you use this method, you will never lose your hair. So because they started out largely as kitsch or as a gag. Or a novelty, maybe. Is it hard to get people to take them seriously? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had to have a show like this for people to take me seriously because they are kitsch. But kitsch and yet kitsch. still historically significant. Well, think? isn't that what's so great about them? I think that's what people are responding to. And why not? Books, even haunted ones, remind us that maybe in this age of digital novels and e-readers, that perhaps we're missing something. Everyone wants to kill books. They're dead. We're going to the book funeral. It's like, what? No. Books are so meaningful to so many people, and I feel like this is the time to celebrate them in a positive way. The wood in this box and celebrate them, she has. More proof that, yes, books, even fake ones, still matter. The world's a tough place, and you know, this is a little spot of joy. It's great. Still to come? After Office Hours with actor B.J. Novak. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Ryan, 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 yes! Just think that temp agency could have sent you anywhere. I think about that all the time. B.J. Novak may have become the most famous temp on television, thanks to his role in the series The Office. Well, this morning he is out of the office and in a question and answer session with Ben Tracy. Yeah, I'm not a temp anymore, which means at my 10-year high school reunion, it will not say Ryan Howard is a temp. It will say, Ryan Howard is a junior sales associate at a mid-range paper supply firm. That'll show him. For eight seasons on the hit comedy TV series, The Office, B.J. Novak played yeah. Ryan Howard, the sarcastic and only occasionally ambitious temp. What? I like how guys just know stuff all the time. Girls know a lot of stuff too, okay? And nobody knows more than you, especially me. But Novak was one of the hardest working people on set. An actor, writer, executive producer, and director. People keep calling me a wonderkind. I don't even know what that means. What are you not good at? Anything besides this. <laughs> like, I don't actually feel multi-talented. I just feel that I'm in this business where we give ourselves a hundred titles and gold statues. And You know, it's like lawyers aren't like, you're incredible. You're a professional arguer in front of the judge. You're great at paperwork. You, you know, you just get credit for you one job. You know how job. to write a brief. Yeah, right, you're great at briefs. What can't you do? You, anything besides being a lawyer. So I can't do anything besides like coming up with funny stuff sometimes. You Actually, know, just, he comes up with funny stuff so often that his ideas fill notebooks that fill boxes inside his house in Los Angeles. Here's an idea for a book called Other People's Problems, where people send in their problem anonymously and, uh, and then it's just collected in a huge coffee table book that anytime you're feeling low, you can just flip through this book and be like, God, I'm glad I don't have those problems. So this is what you're doing while other people are watching reruns of Law and Order? No, this is what I'm doing when I'm like at dinner with a friend. Like I'm, I'm the most antisocial person. And they always think I'm writing about them. And it's even more insulting when I'm like, no, there's nothing to do with I'm you. I'm not even paying attention I'm to you. I'm not even paying attention to you. <laughs> I'm in this. I'm in my own head. <laughs> The 36-year-old got to express a lot of the ideas in his head in his 2014 best-selling book of short stories called One More Thing. It includes everything from an imagined rematch between the tortoise and the hare to a Comedy Central roast 
of Nelson Mandela. You went to Harvard, you majored in English and Spanish literature. Mm -hmm. Was any of this a bit about showing your academic cred that you really were a writer's writer? My father accused me of showing off in the last story. So I'm sensitive to that, <laughs> to that accusation because it's it, the opposite of uh, how I approach everything. I think of entertaining people as better than showing off. So for me, this was just, I didn't know how else to say. These things. Je fait. Écrit un livre. But just to make sure everyone knows that Novak is aware writing short stories might seem pretentious, he fired the first shot, making a book trailer in black and white and in French with his former office co-star and one-time girlfriend, Mindy Kaling. Hi, everybody. It is great to be invited to your school. I'm he so then wrote another book for a slightly younger audience. The book with no pictures is one of those ideas he once wrote down in a notebook. I believe you are the only person to write a book with no pictures for preschool age kids. I would imagine I am. That's quite a distinction. It is, it, when it hit the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list of picture books, I had that framed. <laughs> the mischievous kid in me was, was very excited to have pulled that off. This on the back of the book says, warning, this book looks serious, but it is actually completely ridiculous. The book is cleverly designed to make adults the butt of the book. joke. What? They have to say all That's sorts of silly anything. things. Blur. Gluga waka my girlfriend do I my face is a Novak agonized over every word of gibberish and the color and size of every font. So you clearly thought about this. You were very hands-on. Oh yeah, I was obsessive. Yeah. I drove them crazy. I went through two designers <laughs> for a book that like looks like the plainest thing in the world. Benjamin Joseph Novak was born in Newton, Massachusetts, and credits his love of writing to his father, one of the most famous authors you've never heard of. William Novak was the ghostwriter behind many bestsellers, including memoirs for Nancy Reagan and Lee Iacocca. And his job provided BJ with a real-life story that sounds like something he might make up. Apparently, when you were a child, you played categories with Michael Jackson? Yeah. Not regularly. <laughs> um, it wasn't like a Tuesday night no, thing. No, that was, that was one of the many just occasionally bizarre things that would happen when your father is a ghostwriter. He was working on a book that never came out with a businessman that had a partnership uh, with some charity venture with Michael Jackson. And one night he said, we're going to this house for dinner. I'm told Michael Jackson will be there. And, and in the course of the dinner, there was a categories game. He won. I lost. He sang, we are the champions. It was gorgeous. <laughs> I, I, don't, I mean, it, it happened. I don't know. And I guess in my stories, a lot of, you know, bizarre things just happen sometimes. And I guess I grew up thinking, yeah, maybe, maybe something crazy will happen. Something crazy, such as growing up idolizing director Quentin Tarantino and then finding yourself in his 2009 film, Inglorious Bastards. What do you mean, the little man? German's nickname for you. The German's nickname for me is the little man? Nothing will ever be that exciting again, you know, to, to have your hero as a filmmaker sort of frame you in, in a viewfinder. Just thinking about it, my heart is beating differently. It was really the biggest honor I've had, I think. Sound good? Yes, sir! But Novak says performing stand-up comedy is still the most formative creative experience of his life. If I could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, I think I would choose Alive. <laughs> Stand-up is how he was discovered for The Office and where he still tests out all those ideas in those notebooks. I feel like there's a voice in my head always telling me every idea is brilliant and another uh, telling me every idea is the worst and they, they argue in my head until somebody wins, <laughs> until I solicit an audience to be like, will you help me figure this out? Is this the best or the worst idea? And, you know, they tell me. Next. Remembering author Harper Lee. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. We take note now of two major literary passings this past week, both on Friday. Umberto Eco, the author of the novel The Name of the Rose, died in Milan at the age of 84. Closer to home, Harper Lee passed away in Monroeville, Alabama, at the age of 89. She made her lasting mark on American culture years ago with a single magnificent novel. An appreciation now from Anna Werner. When he was nearly 13, my brother Jem got his arm badly broken at the elbow. If there is one book you remember reading in school, there's a good chance it's To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Nearly everyone could identify with Scout, the story's narrator, including Oprah Winfrey. I fell in love with Scout. I wanted to be Scout. I thought I was Scout. You ready? Uh Uh-huh. Let her go. The Pulitzer Prize-winning novel and the celebrated 1962 film that followed gave us the indelible characters of six-year-old Scout and her father, Atticus Finch. Tom? An attorney who bravely represents a black man falsely accused of raping a white woman in a segregated southern town. It's Finch, played by Oscar winner Gregory Peck, who delivers one of Lee's most famous lines. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. Sir? Till you climb inside of his skin and walk around in it. Did Harper Lee allow anyone to really sort of climb inside her and walk around? No, she really didn't. And she talked to a lot of people, just not reporters. She famously stopped giving interviews in 1964. In her documentary, author and former CBS News producer Mary McDonough Murphy examined Lee's work and life. She never married. Right, but she does uh, write about Gregory Peck and how fabulous he is. They did spend quite a lot of time together. Nell Harper Lee was born in the small town of Monroeville, Alabama. In her 20s, she helped her childhood friend, Truman Capote, investigate a gruesome murder in Kansas. The result, Capote's bestseller, In Cold Blood. Lee's friend, Wayne Flint. And I think you could make a very good case for the fact there would be no In Cold Blood were it not for the research she did. And for a long time, it was thought that Mockingbird was Lee's only book. It turns out, in 1957, a publisher had rejected another manuscript. The new book, Go Set a Watchman, became a bestseller last year, although there were many who questioned if Lee, in failing health, had wanted it released at all. I did ask her when I saw her in July. Uh, I held up Go Set a Watchman and I said, did you ever think that you would see this published, and she said, of course I did, don't be silly, in a very kind of scout feisty way. Ten years ago, Harper Lee received an honorary degree from Notre Dame. And when 2,800 graduates held up their copies of her masterpiece, the great writer's face spoke volumes. There's monkey business aplenty to be found in a valley in Japan. Seth Doan has sent us a postcard from Nagano. Sure, they're monkeys, but haven't you felt like this? Really, who could refuse a steaming hot bath on a cold winter's day? This guy seems so relaxed he can't quite keep his eyes open. These snow monkeys come down from the mountains of Nagano, Japan, seeking warmth. And as you might imagine, plenty of humans come seeking them. We made the trek in through a thick forest of Japanese cedar along with a group of photographers, led by Mark Hemmings. I'm not so much a wildlife photographer per se, but I really like photographing the monkeys because they have such human characteristics. Hemming's day job takes him around the world shooting commercials. Let's load this baby up. But for a decade now, he's also been leading photography tours. One of the highlights of his Japan itinerary, of course, is seeing these snow monkeys, a.k.a. Japanese macaques. I think you could tell a story just by the, the, the expression on this monkey's face. This area is called Jigokudani, or Hell Valley. 
because of the sulfurous, steaming hot springs bubbling underground. The nearby town is known for its onsen, or hot baths, which evidently were drawing more than just tourists. So to avoid scaring off those who actually paid to use them, a monkeys-only pool was created. Throw in a little barley to sweeten the deal, and voila, you get bathing monkeys. I've never seen it, and I live here. American Filbert Ono grew up in Hawaii and now lives in Japan. He joined Hemming's tour. This year, the year of the monkey is the best time to see it. <laughs> really? You said this is, this is the year? This is the year. Yes, it's the year of the monkey on the lunar calendar. And that means monkey-themed anything is a big deal in this part of the world. There are monkey cakes, even special orchids on display that really resemble monkeys. But to celebrate, it's hard to beat a trip here. They have it made. They've got the life. Teachers Matt and Robin Luther from Milwaukee first saw these snow monkeys in National Geographic. We see them relaxing and doing something that we enjoy doing. These primates prefer to bathe during inclement weather, and the snow, said Mark Hemmings, makes the perfect backdrop. Right now we have snow falling, we have overcast skies, and that produces a nice soft appearance for the face, for the monkey face. And plus, because these are snow monkeys, we want snow. And you've got and we it. have snow. Monkeys are sacred in some circles here, tied to Japanese Shinto Buddhism and some say they protect against demons or disease. In real life, they seem most focused on grooming, scraping off lice eggs to be exact, which sounds a tad less mythical. But there's no doubt they're pretty cute. You're looking at these as though it's portraiture, almost as portraiture of a human. The human face uh, tells so much with just the smallest amount of change in the muscle structure. And you can see that in these monkeys as well. It's almost as though the monkeys are looking back at the shivering tourists, questioning evolution. After all, who looks more content at this very moment? Thanks again. Next. He goes, Mom, the cops are still the good guys, right? And I said, yeah. I got to tell you, Jeremy, how much this really means to us. A thank you party like none other. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Throwing a party is one way of saying many thanks to special people. Steve Hartman has just been to a thank you party that was special indeed. It's not unusual for police to get called to a party, but what was unusual about this party in Lansing, Michigan is that it was in their honor. A police thank you party put on by this most unlikely host. Why did you want to do this? So I'm throwing them the thank you party to show them I still appreciate them. Last year, in the midst of all those police protests, 11-year-old Jeremy Bordua, who'd always wanted to be a police officer, asked his mom, Marcella, if he'd picked the wrong profession. He goes, Mom, the cops are still the good guys, right? And I said, yeah. There are some bad police officers, and then there's still the good ones that are trying to protect themselves. Jeremy got that, but he still didn't like the idea of the good being lumped in with the bad. So to rectify the situation, he told his mom that for his next birthday, all he wanted was to throw a thank you party for police, assuming they would come. I mean, I thought maybe there'd be three or four guys here. Yeah, me too. You too? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know it was going to be this big, really. Well, happy birthday to you. Once word got out, more than 100 officers responded. And not just from Lansing, but from all over the state of Michigan. Thanks again. Deputy James Revel drove here from Georgia. I just want to say thank you for doing all that you do for us. You're welcome. Because he saw not every police officer is bad. We're human beings, and that's what he sees in us. There's one person that really recognizes what we truly are out here to do. There just aren't kids like that. Gary Hall flew in from Los Angeles. I got to tell you, Jeremy, how much this really means to us and how, how humble you are. The kid had no idea the depth of their gratitude. Thank you. <laughs> but... He was about to find out. You're a good boy. Thank you. See, to help make all this happen, Jeremy not only gave up his party, 
but his presence as well. So, in appreciation for that sacrifice, the Lansing Police Department made him an honorary member of their force. We also have a hat for you. Gave him a real uniform, right down to the badge. So I'm gonna pin this badge on you, okay? Last year at this time, Jeremy wasn't sure he wanted to be a cop, but now he is unwavering. If you pull me over, can I get out of my speeding ticket? And incorruptible. Probably not. <laughs> Just ahead. See, the idea that Quentin Tarantino would call you up and say, hey, come audition for me. Yeah, it didn't seem like a reality that was going to happen. Oscar nominee Jennifer Jason Lee. Listen for a moment, lads, and hear me tell my tale. Listen, uh, Mark Ratner really likes you. You like him? Mark is really nice, but I think I like you. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. Jennifer Jason Lee won fans, but no Oscars for her role in the 1982 film Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Fast forward to next Sunday night, when she'll be awaiting the call for the envelope, please. Tracy Smith now on the difference 34 years can make. In Quentin Tarantino's big-screen Western epic, The Hateful Eight, there are plenty of familiar faces. No one said the job's supposed to be easy. No one said it's supposed to be that hard, neither. And one you might not have seen for a while. Jennifer Jason Lee is a prisoner on her way to be hanged, and you can tell that it hasn't been an easy trip. The way you look in that movie... How would you describe it? You know, she's had a rough go. I mean, she has a black eye and her face is scratched up and bruised. And I remember the very first day of shooting, just taking a picture and sending it to my mom, just saying, this is as good as it's going to get. For much of the movie, she's chained to Kurt Russell. He's a bounty hunter who rules with an iron fist, usually to her face. I'll give you, he got guts. But in the brains department, you're like a man who took a high dive in a low well. <laughs> it really is a fun job. <laughs> I mean, what we get to do is great. It's funny because you kind of think that you'd be a little sick of Kurt Russell at this point since Never. you were... Never. Look at your face. Never. No, I wish I were still handcuffed to him, to be quite honest. I mean, he's just, he's just the best guy. He really is. One of them fellas is not what he says he is. What is he? In cahoots with this one, that's what he is. At 54, Jennifer Jason Lee never dreamed she'd be in cahoots with Quentin Tarantino. And she never, ever thought she'd hear these words. Her performance by an actress in a supporting role. The nominees are Jennifer Jason Lee, The Hateful Eight. And if that weren't enough, Lee is the voice of the title character in another of this year's Oscar nominated films, the animated feature Anomalisa. Most people don't really like to look at me too much because, you know. I think you're lovely. It took us three days to voice it, but it took them two years to actually make the movie because at best they shot two seconds a day. Two seconds a day. If they had a good day. It's wild. Incredible, incredible. The sex scene alone took six months. A six month sex scene? Yeah, a six month puppet sex scene. <laughs> Do you allow yourself to think about what Oscar night will be like? I didn't even allow myself to think about like what this interview would be like. <laughs> I... An Oscar nod is a big moment for any actor, especially one who once thought her acting career was all but over. In the 80s and 90s, Jennifer Jason Leigh was a fixture on the big screen. You've got to be kidding. She was a total nutcase as Bridget Fonda's creepy copycat roommate in Single White Female. I've got an even hotter story. The sap from the city desk. Watch it, aren't you? It's about a dim-witted editor. Who hey, easy, tough guy. She played a tough-talking reporter <laughs> who packed a wallop <laughs> in the Hudsucker Proxy. I, I fall in love with married men. And she was at her this. droll, I, witty best as writer and, and poet Dorothy Parker. And I write two dads because... It's a do-that kind of town. When she was an American girl. But her career really began in 1982 at Ridgemont High. 
She was happy to be working, but not all that surprised. Jennifer Jason Lee thought showbiz was her destiny. That'd be great. Stacy. I grew up in Hollywood, so it really did seem like that's what people did when they grew up. It didn't seem like some faraway dream or something like, could that happen? It just seemed like, oh yeah, that's what people do when they grow up. And there was a, there's a naivete to that, obviously, but I think that worked in my favor. How so? Because it didn't seem impossible. And she was practically born into it. Her dad was Vic Morrow, hero of the 60s TV series Combat. Sure, every time there's a dirty job to do, something happens to you. Well, not this time. Now move out. He was killed in a tragic accident on a movie set just three weeks before Fast Times at Ridgemont High was released. Her mother, actress and writer Barbara Turner, would take young Jennifer to New York City for theater and lunch here at a Manhattan landmark that is now The Leopard at Des Artes. What do you remember about coming here? The murals. Yes, I have very special memories about this restaurant and coming to New York as a child. The murals are still vivid. And in time, Lee's career would be just as, well, colorful. I'm not sure you a good time. Yeah, sure. I'll show you the time of your life. She was widely praised for her work as a hooker in 1989's Last Exit to Brooklyn. And as another That's hooker okay. in 1990's Miami Blues. I hope uh, the next girl's more than you're liking. Jennifer Jason Lee could play a fallen woman as well as okay, anyone. When I was doing research for this, I came upon an Entertainment Weekly article where they called you the Meryl Streep of bimbos. Oh, <laughs> really? That's hilarious. What do you think of that, the Meryl Streep of I'll bimbos? I'll take the Meryl Streep of anything, actually. You know what? Just be there for me, silently. But in recent okay. years, her career cooled off a bit. You think? She married and divorced writer-director Noah Baumbach, gave birth to a son, and resigned herself to the idea that her big movie days might be over. I just hadn't been working that much, and I was feeling like, you know what? I've had a really good run. I've worked with incredible directors. I, I've made movies that I'm really proud of. Did you think maybe that was the end of your acting career? May, not the end. I wouldn't say the end, but just like my life was shifting, and I was getting more into I was writing more, and, and I just remember one day, actually, my brother-in-law was like, you know, all it takes is a call from like Quentin Tarantino for everything to turn around. He and used I that just, name? Yeah, and I just kind of laughed because it seemed so, not impossible, but how many movies does he make, you know, and how many times are there going to be, is there going to be a part that I could be right for? Will I even get to audition? So the idea that Quentin Tarantino would call you up and say, hey, come audition for me. Yeah, it didn't seem like a reality that was going to happen. And then it happened. And now, with an Oscar nomination behind her, Jennifer Jason Lee is finally allowing herself to look ahead. I actually would love to make a movie that my son could go see and that my, my nieces could go see. They're not going to go see Hateful Eight. They're not going to see Anomalisa either. So, uh, <laughs> I don't think they're going to be able to see anything I've made so, thus far. However, None of your movies? I mean, I'm trying to think. Can you think of one? I really no. can't. No. So I would like that experience. We'll see. But I do think that this just makes a lot more things possible for me. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's amazing. Next, on the trail to Mammoth Cave National Park. a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Connor Knighton is on the trail to many of our parks during the centennial year of the National Park Service. This morning, he has the lowdown on Mammoth Cave National Park. There's a lot to see at Mammoth Cave National Park. It's just not always that easy to see it. But add a little light, and an entire underground world is illuminated. A world millions of years in the making, still being formed a drop at a time today. Located just beneath the hills of south-central Kentucky, Mammoth Cave is 
Mammoth. It is by far the longest known cave system in the world. We've discovered more than 405 miles of passageways. That's about twice as long as the second longest cave on planet Earth. So we, we could just keep walking forever. <laughs> There's no end in sight. Long before Ranger David Kim was leading tours at Mammoth, early visitors were using candle smoke to memorialize their trips. Mammoth Cave back in the, the 19th century was a very, very famous tourist attraction, but only the wealthiest people could, could afford to be here. So being able to leave your mark and, and indicate that you were here was a status symbol. At the time, Mammoth was privately owned. And as the cave's reputation grew, so did its profits. The steady stream of visitors prompted nearby farmers to take another look at the holes in their backyards. You get paid by building a few steps and buying a few lanterns and, <laughs> and telling some stories underground, and, and people were willing to do it. Trains brought some of the first tourists to cave country, but with the introduction of the automobile, everything changed. 1904, the first automobile arrived at Mammoth Cave, and now suddenly the railroad's no longer in charge of where you go on your tour. Today, the drive into Mammoth is a quiet, scenic journey. But 100 years ago, it was anything but. It was a time known as the Kentucky Cave Wars. Owners of nearby caves flooded the road, trying to direct a bit of Mammoth's traffic in their direction. Are you just getting swarmed by these guys? You are getting hit at every intersection. There were booths along the road, and they were expected to approach every car. Signs promising official cave information were designed to confuse travelers headed to Mammoth, as were similar-sounding cave names like Colossal Caverns. By the time you figured it out, you'd already paid your tourist dollars, and they've, they've got your money in their pocket, and, you know, <laughs> sorry about your luck. You know, keep on driving. You go see Mammoth Cave down the road. <laughs> at the very end of the road was Crystal Cave, owned by the family of renowned cave explorer Floyd Collins. If location was important, that's where Floyd was lacking. His cave was the furthest down the road. In fact, he had to create the road to get to his cave. So Floyd set out to discover a new cave, one at the beginning of the road. But on January 30th, 1925, while exploring a possible entrance, Collins was pinned by a falling rock. He was trapped underground. And for the next 18 days, the story of the Kentucky caver looking to make a better life for his family captivated the nation. His entrapment became a, a worldwide story. In fact, it could be argued it's one of our first nationwide news stories. In January and February of 1925, the whole nation watched. Radio was new. Congress was halted several times so they could listen to what was happening to old Floyd down in Kentucky. Floyd never made it out of the cave. He died just before rescuers were able to reach him. Ballads were written, eulogizing the brave explorer. In cave country, a movement began to ensure that something like this wouldn't have to happen again. They wanted to see something done about this. They wanted Mammoth Cave to be remembered the way that they had remembered it before all this ugly stuff had started. And so they wanted it protected. Finally, in 1941, Mammoth Cave was declared a national park. The Park Service later bought up some of the surrounding caves, which, it turns out, were actually part of Mammoth all along. This year marks the 200th anniversary of organized tours at Mammoth. And not much has changed. Just the sign. Mammoth Cave National Park. How far should our national security agencies go in the war against terror? Former CIA Director Michael Hayden puts his views on the line in a conversation with David Martin. So get me oriented here. Right. Obviously that's... That's Heinz Field? Football fans know that stadium as the home of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Former CIA Director Mike Hayden sees something else down there as well. See how that parking lot there? Yep. That's my boyhood home. The Steelers may have paved over Hayden's working-class neighborhood, but the city of Pittsburgh made up for it by naming a street after him, the local boy who rose to the top of American intelligence. You have been in the middle of just about every controversial intelligence operation of the first decade of the 21st century. What did you learn? Uh, both the power and the limits of intelligence. 
The only man to head both the National Security Agency with its almost incomprehensible power to monitor communications and the CIA, Hayden's memoir is called Playing to the Edge, where the power of intelligence meets the limits of the law. Fundamentally, we're going out there stealing information we are not otherwise entitled to. Now, we do it to foreigners. We don't do it to our own citizens. They're protected by our Constitution. But unarguably, we're out there stealing other people's secrets. So you use the whole field. You take it all the way to the edge. As a lifelong Steelers fan, he used their practice field to make his point. We're, we're playing right up to the line, and we knew it. In the months after 9-11, Hayden set up an operation called Stellar Wind, under which NSA eavesdropped on Americans suspected of communicating with terrorists overseas. You've got a moral responsibility to use all the authorities that you've been given, and that is especially true when you think you're in a national emergency like we were after 9-11. Drone strikes against suspected terrorists also began after 9-11. Another operation on the edge. Now, there aren't many other countries on Earth who believe the American legal theory for targeted killings, all right, that we can use unmanned aerial vehicles for precision strikes outside of internationally accepted theaters of conflict. I'm very happy with it, content with it, legally and morally. As head of the CIA from 2006 to 2009, Hayden had to personally approve those drone strikes. He remembers one in particular, against Abu Kabab al-Masri, a master bomb maker and chief of al-Qaeda's WMD program. We had him, quote unquote, within our sights, but, he's, but he was with members of his family. He actually had a grandson sleeping near him, and so as part of our intelligence contribution to the operation, you're engineering what weapons could be used, what's the probability of kill for those weapons, and it was going to be a very close call as to whether or not we could kill the target and spare the grandson. We did everything we could. And? We failed. We killed him, but the grandson died also. And you can live with that? I can't. And I, and, I, and I say I can without any sense of being cavalier. I have grandchildren, too. That's a long road for a Catholic altar boy to travel, but he can still go home again and hobnob with his old junior high school football coach, Dan Rooney, chairman of the Pittsburgh Steelers. So you spotted this guy early, huh? Spotted him real early. Tucked away behind six Super Bowl trophies is a wall of Steeler greats, including the young Mike Hayden, who helped with the team's equipment. We're kind of above 98 percentile here of certitude. 35 years later, he became director of the National Security Agency, right in the middle of the information revolution. NSA, which had spent the 20th century intercepting communications that went through the air, started stealing information from other countries' computer networks. It was sitting there for the taking if you could just get there to grab it. The image of NSA as linguist with headphones right. on and listening. <clears throat> now you're talking about hackers. Right. Yeah. That's night and day. It, it is. And one of the most, I, I agree with you. So you're going from listening to breaking and entering. You bet. Last year, when China hacked into the Office of Personnel Management and stole the private information of millions of government employees, U.S. officials treated it as an outrage. To Hayden, it was a nifty piece of work. If I could have done that against someone else, against China, while I was director, I'd have done it in a heartbeat. No shame in that. Here it comes. Did you? <laughs> no, you'd have heard about it if we had. But we would have if we'd have had the chance. Once you get inside a network, it sounds like it's like once you get inside a house and do anything you want. Yep, that's right. Once you're in a network, you can do a whole bunch of other things to that network. It's just that NSA doesn't have the authority to do that. NSA does not have the authority, for instance, to crash the computers which run another country's air defense system. That's an act of war, the job of the U.S. military. So in 2005, NSA Director Hayden, who also happened to be an Air Force general, became the first head of what is today called Cyber Command. Somebody's been working on these cyber weapons. Hmm. Was that you? Yeah, we were developing ways to do things. And so we created this, this stable 
of weapons. Stable of weapons? You're out there stockpiling cyber weapons. Yeah. Can you tell me about any computer network attacks that you pulled off? No, because this is so hideously overclassified, it's hard for us to have an adult discussion about what it is we are or are not doing. So let's take down this wall of secrecy. How powerful are cyber weapons? The problem with cyber weapons is not whether or not they're powerful, David. The problem with cyber weapons for a country like ours is the ability to control them. The now famous 2010 Stuxnet attack mounted by the U.S. and Israel against computers which controlled Iran's uranium enrichment centrifuges spread to networks in more than 100 countries, including the U.S. What is keeping other countries from taking down our networks? Number one, it's, it's not as easy as it looks. Number two, you have to think, why would they want to do that? Uh, we, we are a very powerful nation. It may not be in their interest to make us really, really angry at them. And what about a terrorist group? Yeah, isn't it interesting? I know of no terrorist group using a cyber weapon to effect physical destruction. And here I'm talking about the Al-Qaeda's and the ISIS's of the world. And then the follow-on question I usually get is, why? And the follow-on answer I usually give is, I have no idea. But they haven't done it yet. Capability. Um, these guys are cyber smart. They use the web for everything else. You would, you would think within their legions that they would have the talent to do this. I, I just can't explain why it hasn't happened. Hayden is out of government now, working as a consultant to corporations doing business in the age of terror and cyber attacks. The only time he's in danger of stepping out of bounds is on the practice field. You might say he's backed away from the edge. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.